Welcome to another episode of Outside the System. In this episode, I caught up with my friend Eric Jorgensen. Eric was previously on my other podcast, Made You Think, for his book about Naval Ravikant. Eric has also written a lot about leverage, and it's a big part about how he thinks about what to work on. You can find links to the previous episode and his writing in the show notes. We spent less time talking about his book and leverage in this episode, and more time on his work as an investor at Rolling Fund, specifically the areas where he sees opportunities to build world-changing companies by going outside the status quo. It was a really fun discussion, and we had to resist the urge to go on a million tangents along the way. As a side note, Eric has an epic, ongoing, multi-year thread on Twitter about the sandwiches he's eaten. So if you hear me reference sandwiches during the episode, that's what I'm talking about. I'll link to that in the show notes, too. As always, if you find value from this episode, you can support Outside the System with Bitcoin on Fountain or any other value-for-value-enabled podcast player. Let's get into the episode. Eric, good to have you on the show. Very good to be here. Thanks, Neil. So this is the second podcast we're actually doing together. We did one on Naval Manak uh, on Made You Think. So maybe we'll spend a little bit of time on those concepts, but I, I know you work on, you've been working on a ton of other new things since then, so we'll spend more time on that. Well, and you ditched Nat going solo like Timberlake. So uh, yeah, let's... <laughs> Let's go. No, we still have made you think. So the group is still together. We got the separate one. You know, we got a couple things going going on. Good, 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 good. Yeah, a lot of a lot of audio these days. But um, maybe the best place to start, which is you know kind of related to Naval Manak, you have this concept that you talk a ton about called leverage, basically, and you talk about it in a lot of different different ways in different areas. I think the best place to start is maybe just introduce that because I. From what I know of what you've worked on since, I think there's a lot of that that kind of builds into the things you ended up working on later. There's a whole chapter on it in the Navalmanac, and but it's still kind of the least or the most underexplored concept in that book, I think. You know, there's some chapters you're kind of like, oh, I read this chapter about accountability. I get it. Um, but a lot of people reached out to me after the book came out and said, like, hey, where else can I read about leverage? I want to kind of keep going deeper. And I didn't have a great answer to that for them or for myself. And I felt the same way that there was just so much more to kind of learn and explore and continue to kind of flesh out that framework and apply it to things and live it. And when you really start to sort of overlap understanding that mental model with seeing like the success stories in the world and feeling a little bit of that momentum yourself, you're kind of like, holy shit, there's a lot here. Like, let me keep pushing and keep exploring. By way of like introduction, I guess uh, leverage is... The mental model based on like the simple machine from physics. So you can't lift 800 pounds, but if you have a 20 foot lever, all of a sudden you can. And there's all these things around us that sort of augment our effort, um, whether that's tools or capital or people or product. And there's a lot of the sort of success stories that you see in the world or a lot of the things that look a little bit confusing are the result of leverage in the same way that sort of some of the insane like outcomes uh, come from compounding in like the wealth and investing world that it's just like counterintuitive, nonlinear thinking that like we are not sort of conditioned to do uh, genetically unless you really like get your head into it. And you have to kind of keep re-reminding yourself of these really counterintuitive concepts. So yeah, I just started like learning a ton more about leverage and applying it and, and writing about it and trying to kind of figure that out. And that, that ended up turning into a course, but really more so it ended up totally changing how I thought about my work and my career and has led to a lot of reprioritization in my life. So like in what, in, in what ways in particular? 
I'm way less patient with basically like effort and work that doesn't compound, I guess. It, it doesn't like make me better tomorrow than I was today. You know, I, I started working on, it basically made me never want to say yes to any consulting agreement ever. So for, as a matter of like a very practical thing, but I would have, but I have infinite patience to like spend time with you here recording a podcast because this will reach hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people. It'll live on hopefully as long as the internet lives on and be accessible to a ton of people. And we are spending, you know, an hour or two to create this product that is a, this tiny little digital clone of us that can repeat having this conversation an infinite number of times for essentially no incremental cost. And that is a huge, that's a huge lever. And that lever can keep getting longer. And that's turns out to be a great use of time compared to, you know, even if I could sell this hour for $500, you know, in a consulting agreement, but would never lead to a next great outcome or some other sort of um, serendipitous thing. It just doesn't feed into anything else. I mean, I, I guess that's one like tactical example, but it totally, you know, it led me a lot of different directions. It led me to want to write another book. It led me to want to start a podcast of my own. It led me to write, spend a lot more time writing in blog form. Also, it led me to start investing much more aggressively and, and start a fund. So like all of really the decisions in my working life over the last year or two have come out of sort of an increased understanding of this concept of leverage and you know, what it means and what it looks like to com continuously compound leverage over one year or 10 years or 100 years. And is that something that you instinctively did well or badly before one way or the other, would you say? Because I know, you know, before I came across your book, I had thought about some of these things just from, you know, no, like Nat is, I think, one of the best at, that I've ever met, at least at, at uh, understanding this pretty intuitively. Like I'd always kind of looked up at the things that he would do and would try to emulate some of that. But I didn't understand the concept itself, I don't think, until until Navalmanac and then prepping for the, the podcast that we did together. But instinctively, I'm terrible at this, right? So like my instinct goes to like, well, why would I pay someone if I could do it myself? And like that is a terrible way to think that I know now, but I, my instincts would still say that sometimes. Uh, I mean, we were even talking before we hit record, right? Like, of the podcast clips. And I mean, in this case, I am thinking about it with leverage a little better, but I'm making them myself right now. So I know what to tell somebody when I eventually outsource it. But I keep delaying the outsourcing decision because I'm like, I don't want to pay someone to do that. So instinctively, I'm terrible at it. Is it something that you are, would you say you are good, you were good at before you started digging into this? Or is it something you learned through the process? Yes and no, but way more no than yes. So uh, like, of the like four types of leverage, so that's tools, product, people, and capital. What I find in myself is is what I think is true of most people is that they are really one or two of those come very intuitively to them, and they really struggle to either act on or even recognize one or two of the others. So for me, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. You know, my dad was reading books about Buffett. And so like I learned about capital leverage from a relatively young age. And I still remember being like, I don't know, five and understanding like the basic concept of interest of being like, oh, if you have enough money, your money will make you money. So like that is very baked into me. And so I always understood, you know, capital can be get capital. I'm not good at spending that money to buy back my own time. 
um, or, or wasn't intuitively good at that. I am definitely not intuitively good at using people leverage in the sense that I don't like telling other people what to do and I don't like inconveniencing people. And I especially don't like it if I don't think that they already want to do the thing that I'm about to ask them to do. And like, I'm not a particularly good manager. I can be a good recruiter. I'm not a great delegator, but I'm like working on it. And that's what I like about, you know, Twitter and blogging and podcasting and investing is that all of these are like incredibly voluntary interactions. You know, like if you're not interested in the things that I tweet about, you'll unfollow me. Whereas like if I'm managing someone in a larger company, like you probably stay in that job, even if you don't like me, don't like what I'm telling you and don't want to do the things that I'm telling you to do. And it's just these like high tension, high confrontation relationship constantly. And I don't feel like I have any of that in my life now, which I'm, which is great tool leverage. Like I'm not super good at it's high friction for me to want to learn a new tool and product leverage. I came kind of intuitively to me just because I had some early experiences kind of like writing and sharing and seeing the scale that comes from creating something of such high quality that other people share it and how much reach a really good piece of media can have. So, so product leverage and capital leverage come decently well to me not good at translating capital leverage into or capital into the other forms of leverage intuitively. But as I like, that's kind of what I try to do in the course is and create tools and frameworks to force myself to see the bigger picture and more opportunities and be really shine, shine a harsh light on areas that I'm failing to create leverage or failing to act in a high leverage way. And all of those tools I think work, you know, for others who, who might be starting with different skills or intuitions than I am. Yep. The voluntary thing you mentioned is interesting. You know, it's not something I expected we, to, us to talk about, but I think it's like super interesting because it ties to Web three a lot, right? I know I, um, I think my one of my first exposures to to like actually learning what a DAO is came through your podcast. Oh, cool! With Index, nice. And I remember listening to because, like, obviously, I'd heard of DAOs, you know, and I, I would say I had like a five percent knowledge of what they actually are. And then that interview, it was like, you guys got really deep into the specifics and how it works. And I think you had maybe been involved in, a, in one way, shape or form. And so you were talking about that experience and uh, it was like, oh, this is how it actually works. It's really interesting. So I guess like, how are your thoughts then on like Web3 projects and kind of how work is organized in the Web3 world generally versus, you know, sort of the corporate or even, even startups, right? Like startups are also organized many times in like a hierarchical uh, structure, uh, I guess, like a venture back startup in particular, would be like that. Yeah, I don't know. Web three is interesting to, and and DAOs in particular are interesting in that like there's all these new possibilities that, and there's kind of this new ideology, but we have all these habits and momentum from the previous set of ideologies and capabilities that we are like not. It's really hard to break those habits, and so a few of the DAOs that I kind of poke my head into, um, like Index Coop, is like. You're like, oh, this is going to be this radical new way of working. And like you go spend a few weeks doing it. And it's kind of like there are definitely new and interesting pieces about this, but it is more similar to having a job than it is dissimilar from having a job. If you're full time on it and expecting it to be your full time income, there's still teams, there's still project leads, there's still, you know, goals and metrics. And, you know, the fact that you can join or quit at any time and that it's a little, maybe a little bit more of a meritocracy or that it's pseudonymous or whatever is like, you know, 30% different, but not 90% different. 
from like the previous experience of, of having a remote job. But you can also see how it becomes, you know, 70% different over 10 years of sort of new, that ideology permeating and new experiments happening and new tools and technologies. So it is, um, I don't know, it's a fun area to watch. And I'm very excited about Web3 conceptually, but very difficult to predict, you know, the, the mix of habit and momentum and ideology and technology all sort of in this weird hurricane soup. Yeah, because that is what it feels like a lot of the time, right? It's just like all this stuff happening, things being developed every single day. And you're just like, is this thing going to be around in six months or not? And how, and not even six months, like what's still going to be around in six years? Like it's kind of hard, really, really hard to predict. Yeah, there's, there's no, there's no track record. You know, there's no, there's no Lindy, like everyone's kind of making everything up as they go. And, and in the absence of like a huge unknown and a critical unknown, you tend to just pull the framework, you know, it's like, Hey, we have a DAO. There's all these people who want to contribute. Uh, how do we organize them? I don't know. Well, it's really painful to have no organization. So like, let's grab the first thing that we have, which is like an org chart from a startup. And so like you end up having something that looks a lot like an org chart from a startup, even though nominally we were trying to do something totally new, but it's just really difficult to work through those ambiguities and like do everything from first principles all the time. And then you get these like path dependent outcomes where DAOs end up starting to look a lot like startups, even though they didn't have to because there wasn't time to go reinvent from the ground up in this new context. And then it has to just happen really slowly or not at all. And then, you know, 50 years later, we have QWERTY keyboards. So you, you never really know how these things are going to unfold. Do you think there are certain types of projects that are better suited for DAOs versus like more of a, like a startup type approach? Or is it more like team? Because there's so many variables, right? It's like, the, the leadership of that project can make a big difference. The like specific type of task they're trying to solve, solve for or do makes a big difference. Like, have you just noticed any differences and or any things where like DAOs work better or don't work better? I don't know that I have a great answer to this. I, I think in generally there's a there's like there's probably an interesting like idea to unpack and post to right here about the trade-offs between like the size of the organization, the clarity of the vision and like the, I don't know if there's another axis, but like a few people can operate pretty well without a super, super clear vision, as long as they're all sort of headed in the right direction. But like the more people you get, you have to get really, really clear on goals and parameters and operating expectations before you can harness all that horsepower, right? Like so I, I don't know that I have a, I don't think I have a great answer to that yet. Um, but it's a, it is an interesting thing to see. Investment DAOs maybe seem like the most advanced in this stage. Like it is a little easier to say like, hey, our goal is to allocate capital meritocratically and earn more capital on this. Like that is a much clearer vision than to say, hey, we want to solve this problem or start this, build a product or something like that. There's just so many more decisions that enter into that and so much more ambiguity involved in building a product or a roadmap or solving a customer problem um, than there is in make this treasury bigger, you know? Right. Yeah, I'd explored a concept around, like, so I have obviously the work with the corporate innovation and stuff. And I did a, a, a couple blog posts around corporate innovation DAOs. And had a lot of interesting conversation with people. Basically, like, how do you run this as a separate? I mean, there's a lot of actually corporate innovation functions that are already separate from the corporate function. Like they're just they might be owned, but they don't have any management uh, reporting responsibilities or 
sometimes they're only partially owned or they're a separate investment fund. Like there's, there are structures that already exist pre web three that kind of separate the two, but I, I just kind of did like a thought experiment. So I've had tons of really good conversations with people, but nobody has pulled the trigger yet on actually wanting to do it because there are, there are actual, it's not a silver, it's not a silver bullet, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. It's like, when you first start looking at it, it's like, oh, wow, this is like such a great new way of organizing human behavior. And then you really get into the details and you're like, yeah, it, it, there are definite things that it improves, but it's not like it's a cure all and solves all the problems and actually creates potentially some new problems as well. Which, I mean, I think like that's why I was asking the question, because I think like it'll end up being maybe a little more situational, like certain things. It might make complete sense to go with a DAO and then other things it might be like, no, that's actually more of a traditional startup. Yeah. I remember writing a post to trying to unpack this. It's not obvious what order of magnitude of an impact. Like, I think DAOs will take some market share, quote unquote, from c- companies or corporations, but it's not, you know, it might be a tenth of a percent or a percent or 10%. It's unlikely to be a hundred percent, but kind of where it settles is going to be a really interesting thing over, you know, a 10 year time horizon versus a hundred year time horizon and how those things fit together. Yeah, very interesting question. Um, but like a lot of unknowns, you know. A ton, a ton. Yeah, yeah and it's still like uh, this is such a uh, crypto thing to say, but it's like it's so early. <laughs> well, the reason I say that is like, I mean, I feel like you're probably similar. Like I'm in multiple bubbles. My Twitter bubble is like super crypto heavy. So to me, it feels like everyone's talking about stepping right, like as a thing, and then talk to my friends who are not involved in crypto at all and i mention it to them and they think i'm crazy for doing this thing like like it's like the most insane thing they've ever heard of and they've never heard of it and to me i'm like everyone's talking about it how have you not heard of this but we're in such bubbles and the percentage of people that are in web3 is still incredibly small i think compared to the broader world yeah the bubble there's the bubble for sure and then there's the fact that you know, just because people have heard of Bitcoin and Ethereum or even just Bitcoin, really, like people have the impression that because it's the knowledge is mainstream, that the innovation is like known but hasn't taken hold. And it's just a slower process than that, right? Like these things take decades to actually fully get fleshed out and have the iterations between, you know, regulation and management and building and recruiting and investment and like you know, there's there's a few books that are kind of outline this pattern that is a somewhat of a repeatable pattern that happened, you know, through the electrification of America and then the proliferation of the internet and then the proliferation of mobile globally. And like blockchain is another one of those things that, and, and it is truly like so massively early. I think that the last time I like did napkin math on this, there was, you know, somewhere on the order of like 10 million wallets. And there's a like, 5 billion internet users. So there's like at least 200x and probably more to go. And many of those wallets are probably the same people. Yeah, the wallets are the same people. They're not high utility. Yeah, and and if you internalize like, hey, blockchain's going to be a thing and everyone's going to have a wallet in the same way that they have an email address and maybe multiple email addresses and maybe even more wallets than they have email addresses, then it's not hard to say hey, this is going to be a really exciting space and it's going to take 20 years for it all to unfold and you know it, it probably deserves some of my attention and some of my capital and but like it is wrong to scoff at it because it it is truly so 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 early 
and even though it's very rational to say like it's overhyped it's like yeah it's maybe overhyped like the hype may be above the reality today um in the local but there's an in the yeah in the local but there is enough momentum to be certain that you know the hype will oscillate just like the reality will progress and sometimes it'll be above and sometimes it'll be below but as long as the reality is progressing sort of the underlying confidence that you can have in it as a movement and the attention that it deserves and you know the, the ability for it to change your life is is still there I, I i'm excited to just kind of see it all unfold um you know we i think we were worried there wouldn't be another uh, next revolution in the internet and it's here and we get to live through it again and it's that's exciting yeah it's a good time to be around um there's actually an ex- excellent segue to the next thing i want to talk about which was uh your new fund i know it's i know what a rolling fund is but maybe introduce that uh as well but like the name and then honestly i love how you guys write like human beings on the website like it's a, it's beautiful it's not like a normal vc type website <laughs> yeah uh we could not be taking ourselves less seriously um <laughs> which which uh does not mean that we will not be good stewards of your capital we promise um but hopefully it means we'll just be fun to work with while we while we do what we do. Yeah, I mean, like this came about, I don't know, I guess there's there's a bunch of seeds that led to this. There, there are three partners in the fund, me, Bo, and Al. Bo was uh, the founder of Zarly, so I've been working with him for 10 years. He's a, made a ton of angel investments and founded three or four companies and raised a bunch of money and been on a bunch of boards. And we started kind of investing together. And then a few years ago, I met Al, and he's a, also like great founder, great angel investor. He built a e-commerce company worth a couple hundred million dollars and starting on another startup now. And he's invested in 50 companies and done really well in that as well. But it's all, all three of us were kind of just doing our own personal investing and our own money. And for long enough to be like, oh, like, I think we're good at this. I think we're better at it when we share deals and like kind of help each other along and diligent stuff. You know, Bo and I are a little deeper in crypto than Al. Al is very well networked in sort of the e-commerce world just because that's where he's lived um, for so long. And just, you know, has a, we all have different networks. We're all slightly different ages, but like get along and have fun together. So I think we're sort of compatible and synergistic at the same time. And then, uh, I mean, I was, I think it was at Capital Camp, which is an event in Columbia, Missouri with Al and we were just like talking about our investments and I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about like how, you know, what is the next step there? Like, how do we scale that up? It's not that satisfying to write like a $10,000 check to a founder. Um, it'd be much better to write 50 or a hundred or $200,000 checks to founders. Yeah. Cause they're trying to raise a $2 million round and they're like, this is literally barely worth, you know, the two hours it took to talk to you and send you the deck and do all this paperwork. The $10,000 check they take because they want you, they like, they want your attention on the company, but not like the capital part isn't really that impactful for a company raising a $2 million round. And it's meaningful to me, you know, as a, yep. as an investor. Yep. Um, but yeah, it, like I understand from the founder's perspective that it is better to work with fewer people who can allocate more money and be as helpful ideally. Um, so that was one component. The other is, you know, the more I started writing about some of these angel deals that I've done, you know, like density and triple blind. And I try to be intellectually honest about what I think at the time that I make the investment, you know, startup investing is risky and uncertain and you're never sure, but 
you have to you want to see a path to 100x return you want every investment to be a potential returner of the entire fund you want to invest in like future monopolies and so you have to kind of look at this like tiny little snowflake and see how can this turn into an enormous snowball over 10 or 20 years um which is also counterintuitive because it's very easy to come up with a long list of very viable reasons why that company will fail and everything that you look at maybe has an 80 or 90% probability of failure, but the expected value of the 2% case where they become, you know, a future monopoly with the only combination of sort of like technology and market and distribution where they can capitalize on a, you know, billion dollar a year market is still pretty fucking high. And, you know, the expected value of that might be worth $50 million and you're putting in money at a $5 million valuation. And like you do that enough times and that's wonderful. But you need you need to do it a bunch of times. So the fund helps the entrepreneurs receive more checks. A fund provides access. Um, so as I'm writing these essays, these people are reaching out. And they're like, How can I, you know, get into deals like that? I live in Germany. Well, you're gonna have a hard time meeting the, you know, this founder in Kansas City or Austin or Nashville or whatever who's founding this next incredible company. But if you pile in some money with us, you know, we'll make sure that your money gets into the right hands into some of these exciting companies, especially, you know, tech is increasingly sort of geographically agnostic, but there is something to the fact that there are higher odds that a U.S. company can win a global market than the reverse. You know, there, there are stories like, you know, Skype getting founded in Estonia. I think it was Estonia, certainly like Eastern Europe somewhere. Yeah, Somewhere, somewhere. I think Sweden, Estonia, one of those places. Yeah, one of the places. And, and up in, I think Spotify yeah. coming from Sweden. So Spotify, like, Sweden. Yeah. Okay. Th- yeah, there are like those stories, but the overwhelming majority of like global tech monopolies originated in the U.S. And so there is a, there is meaningful sort of benefit to investing in the companies that if they win in the U.S. can win in the world. And when there's one winner for a market, that is a that is an important dynamic. So yeah, all, all this stuff sort of like came together and we were like, I don't know, we're having a great time. We're investing. We're doing well with our own money and our own skin in the game. We have people who are kind of like, hey, hey can I give you money? And it, it aligned with what I wanted to do, which was to continue to kind of like learn about new technologies, hang out with founders, understand this beautiful, bright future that we have with the right combination of, you know, applied science and entrepreneurship and distribution and and I, I fundamentally believe that technologies make people's lives better and that that's been the primary source of improvement of life extension and quality of life and the reduction of poverty. And that, you know, early stage tech investing is actually where all of those things come together. It's where technology and science and entrepreneurship all and, and capital really like all mesh in this primordial ooze from which like life-changing things come and get distributed and that's where they're born and i just feel really good about swimming around in that ooze and uh, contributing you know my, my brain and my audience and my capital and um being a good steward of other people who want to kind of share that vision and have that impact and have a good outcome if we're right about you know the, the things that we want to push on and the outcomes that we want to see yeah, it makes complete sense. And I really like the uh, request for startups section you guys have on the, the site. So the so one of the main audiences for, for this particular show is basically people building. So I definitely want to make sure we, we get into some of these uh, that you talk about here. I mean, before we get into the specific ones, it's super wide ranging, which I think reflects your interests, you know, just given 
uh, as a listener of your podcast and then avid follower of yours on on Twitter. I mean, the only thing missing from here is like sandwich tech. That's like the only thing that I'm I'm missing from this list. <laughs> if I saw autonomous sandwich assembly, I'd go in on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If anyone's building that, you, you got an investor. <laughs> But yeah, okay. So on a more on a more serious note, the first one is is death tech. Uh, <laughs> going from sandwiches to death. Wow, what a what a transition. High highs and low lows. That's what we do. Bring them high to bring them low. Yeah. But it is like that is definitely an area which you know I know you and I we've had previous conversations just given life events. Um, that's definitely an area where I feel like there hasn't been a lot of especially like innovation and then investment even. But yeah, talk maybe a little bit more about what you guys were thinking on that one. You and I and and many others of our generation are starting to have some highly unfortunate, tragic life experiences that bring us in close brush with this market. And it's just obvious that nobody wants to work on it or has wanted to work on it. And nobody with an inkling of software skill has come within a thousand miles of this space in a long time. So there's a lot of opportunity here. You know, I, I, I went through some of these over the last couple of years and the tools that you use are terrible or non-existent and you just sit there thinking there's got to be better ways to do this it's a hard space to innovate in it's a very difficult product to sell distribution is challenging you've got multiple customers like the customer of the product isn't the consumer of the product and you've got to get alignment on multiple things and the data is really sensitive and the timelines are really long so it is a gnarly messy space it is very difficult to win in. And I know that there are a long trail of well-intentioned pioneers who had just not made it very far down this, this road, but it's not impossible. And I do not mind keeping an eye out for people who have a unique sort of take on this market. And I've seen a few already that I'm are very clever, well-researched takes that have kind of unique distribution. They have a really tight handle on the problem or they have a very unique niche, you know, like Custody and transition of digital assets in particular is a really interesting piece of it. I won't drop specific names here, but like I talk in generalities of like that's one of the niches. And it's, we're just seeing some wonderful deals much sooner than I thought we would actually. And in this space in particular, that I think are, are clever and have pretty high odds of success. And again, like not a crowded space and, and huge, huge, huge markets. Death tech in general is difficult but then you add on like i mean digital assets but then you even add on like the web3 component too with like you're starting to talk about keys and all sorts of stuff like that i mean then it gets even more i mean because i like i'm not old you're not old but i'm sure we've all had those thoughts about our keys like what happens to yeah them, right like and, and this is know, the point you of have, you know the, the backup plan the, the point between customer and consumer right like i might in like want to leave all my crypto stuff in certain context, but like I can't count on, you know, my partner or kids to know how to do it in the crypto way or who's going to be a trustworthy steward of that. Or, you know, like if they don't care, then that's a really like a lot of value just evaporates or gets lost or gets stolen or, you know, and it's a very difficult thing. And I promise the legal, the existing legal and estate system is nowhere near coming up with a reasonable solution for that. The closest thing is basically like, yeah, just give your private key to your lawyer and like, uh, no. And now you have a centralization like, risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like definitely no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting area. And I guess whoever solves that problem is 
going to make a killing. Okay, so next one, Web3 YouTube. I like that a lot. I feel like yeah. YouTube is almost pushing people into whatever becomes Web3 YouTube. Uh, yeah, I mean, a 50% take rate is pretty pretty greedy. I think we'll see over and over again, like Web3 versions with low take rates that just come in with like a 3% or a 5% and just clean up. And it'll start with a niche, you know, like crypto creators or education or something like that. But it'll just kind of keep growing and growing. And you can totally imagine, I, I can't remember, I think I wrote up like a, a product spec for this because I was thinking about building this. And I think it's still, it may be too early. I don't know for sure. But the Web3 YouTube is an interesting one because it's basically some piece of it has to be centralized. Like video files are too big to store in a decentralized way. So you have to have a centralized aspect there. Um, so it's it's more likely to end up company than DAO, whereas like decentralized Twitter could maybe more reasonably, more reasonably just end up as a service. But Web3 YouTube should have a good rake. And you can totally imagine just like signing in with a wallet and then each video that you want to watch has like a sort of a different revenue model. People might give it, give a video away for free or have it choose to be ad based the way it is today. Or they could say, hey, the first 10 minutes of this video is free and the last five minutes are a dollar or 0.001 ETH. Or they could say every minute of this video is 0.0001 ETH and you watch it as long as you want. You could stream, you know, per minute of movie that you watch, you could get paid that way. Or you could have a DRM thing where it's like, I'm going to pay 10 bucks, but I'm going to own this you know, movie or clip or video forever and have my own rights to it. Or I'm going to remix this video, but I'm going to share half the revenue back to the original. Like there are all of these attributions and different revenue models that we can do when you actually have a wallet attached to your account inherently. And it can be much more private. And the creators of on a Web3 YouTube could be they're much less likely to get disintermediated, right? You know, Mr. Beast has, I don't know, however many millions of followers, but if YouTube decided to fuck him tomorrow, they could. And I hope he's got an email list, but he'd still probably lose some people. And a, a truly, like a, a true Web3 YouTube would allow audience export. And they'd basically like be maximally open with that data because they know they can't hold on to it, but they earn this sort of, their share of the revenue automatically through these streaming fees, through hosting and through maybe virality and maybe help, helping them grow. Um, the revenue model will be a little different. It may end up being a smaller company than YouTube in market cap, but it would it will create a much, much, much larger creator ecosystem. And I think that's sort of the trend we'll see with more uh, of these crypto services. Yeah, the, there's one I saw, or I only actually heard of through uh, one of my other guests, uh, from so Oscar Mary from Fountain, he told he mentioned uh, something called uh, Stacker News, which I don't know if you've heard of, but it's kind of like Hacker News, but basically it's built on Lightning. You have to put up one sat, which is nothing, right? But you have to put up one sat to post. So it kind of and funny thing is like Satoshi talked about this way back uh, in like his forum posts, which is wild. But basically using this as like a way to combat spam. So like you can't just post for free, right? You put up one sat to post and then upvotes are, you get, basically you can accrue value based on upvotes. So if it's like 50 people upvote my post, I get 50 sats for that. Like I get paid for oh, putting up cool. quality content essentially. Yeah, this looks um, exactly, uh, stacker.news looks exactly like a, a black and yellow yep. version of Hacker News. <laughs> yep, but it's just, it's like the same thing you just mentioned with the YouTube thing, right? It's like tied to a wallet. There's like 
a little it's kind of an alternative you know model to just like driving page views it's like you actually have to write good posts to accrue value like i like this web3 media concept really like a lot i don't think we've seen the perfect implementation of it yet anywhere but i like it because it sort of allows value to flow in a much more direct way than i think like the web2 world does where it's like I'm the audience, you're the creator, and then the revenue model is this third-party advertiser who's basically trying to buy like a little bit of my attention because of you. It's almost like being like the parasite along the way, right? Not not saying all advertisers are parasites, but that's not true. But like it's it's just like that is sort of the model. And then web three is more it's not done yet, but the idea is that hey, it's like I'm getting value as the listener, or you're getting value as the creator, and how do we kind of do that thing directly without this third party uh, being involved? Hundred percent. My, um, I don't know if you know Sky King. Uh, he's a, a buddy of mine, an Austin guy, and he he's um helped me start my podcast. But he's got a lot of really good thoughts on this. We've had long conversations about that. But yeah, the, the, the misalignment that comes from adding an extra third party and and then how content is transformed to attract, like to support the advertisement. Let alone the fact that the, the principal agent problem of like the advertisers willing to auction your attention for me- meaningfully less like orders of magnitude less than you value your own attention but because of that sort of psychological barrier of like oh it's free you allow it even though if you know your attention is worth a cent a minute an advertiser will sell it for a fraction of that yeah it's a very interesting problem but yeah it, the interesting thing to me about this stuff like this web3 youtube like it feels inevitable to me that something like this will replace or take a lot of market share from something like existing YouTube. Um, but when is the, is like the most important question. Right. And, and I think there's probably some, there's some math to do there that, and you could come up with a reasonable hypothesis that it's kind of like, well, there's 10 million wallets, but maybe only 3 million users and there's not a big enough niche, uh, like commonality among those 3 million users. And you'd need, you know, the right time to start that company is actually somewhere around, you know, 50 million users and a hundred million wallets. Like it'd be interesting to go back and trace sort of the, this timeline of events of, of the web one and web two overlaid with the adoption of the internet itself. And you could do the same with mobile and see like at, at what user scale of the total internet or total like bandwidth distribution did, eBay take off or Google or like YouTube or all of, or uh, Flickr or all of these things and come up with a little bit of a hypothesis for how it will play out in, in web three. All right. Cause we have a bunch of these. I'm going to go to the next one. Cause we could talk about web three YouTube as like an entire episode. So crypto gusto is really interesting. I like have one project right now where I get, I'm working with a crypto group. And I get paid in crypto for that project. And it's a mess, like this whole payroll, like crypto payroll thing. It, there's no good solution right now that I'm aware of, at least. Maybe there is, but at least this company is not using it. Like this is an obvious enough problem that people are, there's a lot of people tackling it or building for it or whatever. Um, DAO tools, like I've seen jokes about how there are more, now there are now more DAO tool companies than there are DAOs. So it's potentially a little over overdone. And I don't know, I don't know how that's going to unfold. It, it is a problem that needs to be solved. And there's a lot of different niche versions of it too, right? Like how you do it for core contributors versus how you do it for bug bounties versus how you do handle impression mining or marketing budget or sponsorship payouts. 
is all interesting and maybe end up being like totally different companies. A really interesting sort of reframe, I, I think Naval, this is a Navalism, though I don't think it made it in the book, is that a company is basically just at its simplest, a nexus of contracts. And so there's all of these different agreements and if thens and splits and payouts and vendor relationships and customer relationships and employee payouts and marketing spend and hosting bills to pay. And that if you map those things out and you slowly start to kind of examine those relationships one-to-one, you know, the routing of all of those may end up all becoming blockchainified over time and be more and more driven by smart contracts, which is a very interesting thing. And, and it may not be, you know, the ADP of Web3 might be 50 different companies that handle very specific payouts. And even, you know, it's not like ADP handles all of the money within a company. There are already a ton of different vendors that handle a ton of different payouts in different directions. But um, looking at that nexus and then looking at specific use cases as beachheads, I think is a really interesting way to kind of approach the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. There's like different, it's almost like the whole like job to be done framework, right? It's like, instead of like ADP might be doing 20 things and maybe those 20 things can all be separate companies potentially or different services. Maybe some of them have to be bundled. Maybe some of them don't. Okay, I love this next one. Personalized nutrition and health. Stitch fix for my love handles. This is how a, a fun site needs to be done in the future. I feel like the personalized nutrition thing, obviously there's a lot of people who've gone after it. I haven't seen it done super well. I, I don't think, I think there's things that work for different people. This is, I'm not saying there's nothing that works. There's obviously things that work. I just haven't seen like the killer one that's like everyone is, is going all after this. You know, there was like the whole, like there's the meal plan type companies, which have been around forever. It's just DTC versions of that. But I think there's something here that, and I think this is where you're going with it, but I want to make sure that's true before I fully dive into that, is combining like this info you get, you might get from like a wearable, like an aura ring or something like that with nutrition and kind of building this whole kind of, I hate this word, but holistic view of the person. Yeah, that that's the big picture is, is I think that there is, there is a f- unclosed feedback loop between the things that you can now know about yourself you know, like I, I wear a whoop fitness tracker almost all the time. I haven't played with the levels like blood glucose monitoring thing, but I should. There's now like at home uh, blood tests. There's just all kinds of things that you can know about yourself, starting from as basic as your weight on a daily basis, all the way up to, you know, your, your blood glucose level on a minute to minute basis or your genetics. And those are very high friction, let's say, like you have to be really, you have to do all the hard work to basically turn that into inputs for yourself first to parse and say like, Oh, I had whiskey last night. I feel terrible today. My whoop says I feel terrible today. This is the third time this has happened with whiskey. I'm going to stop drinking whiskey versus, Oh, like I actually, um, have a really hard time, you know, processing vitamin D unless I get you know, unless I consume it in the form of green bell peppers, like, like there there are, everybody has these like weird personalized genetic things, whether it's from your gut microbiome or genetics or uh, whatever that, that affects, there is no blanket nutrition advice aside from, you know, stuff that is borderline poison for everybody. But even then some people respond better or worse to different things. And 
the work to turn those insights into action on the other side of what you consume is is overwhelming. And so I think there's a really interesting like you can sort of ladder up complexity starting from, hey, I have a Wi-Fi enabled scale that drives my, you know, either my meal delivery service or my groceries or even just outputs like a calorie and macro recommendation for the day on a very basic level. It's like, hey, you know, your BMI is 32, your body fat percentage is 35, like you should be in a calorie deficit. So here's how you do that for your size and weight. And, you know, this is what we recommend all the way up to have a blood glucose monitor who's like, knows that you bought, had orange juice in your Instacart uh, this week and your you're like blood sugar is off the charts. So we're going to move you to, you know, tea instead or recommend these other things. So I, I think like you'd have to be a little nuts to actually closing that loop um, with increasing complexity and specificity down uh, all the way from weight up to micro vitamins and, and like mixing like, hey, you, you know, there's like vague health advice like, hey, you should be eating turmeric. Like why? Who should be eating turmeric? Are you actually like deficient of a specific thing that that gives you? Or did someone, did you like Gwyneth Paltrow just say turmeric is good for you? So all of those things like could be resolved and and totally like everyone that I pitched this to is like, yeah, but how many people are that crazy that they actually want to optimize to that level? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe not that many, maybe it's only Olympic athletes that actually want to invest in like the maximum level of feedback loop. But there's a lot of great companies that started with a, you know, service for exclusively nuts people who want to truly maximize something. And you can learn a lot of things that make that cheaper and better for other people. It may also be relevant for the incredibly sick. You know, there's stories of people who have beaten cancer through like these very holistic methods by like eliminating, by eating super like vegan diets. And, but it's borders on voodoo when you hear those stories because you don't actually understand the biology involved and there's no, you can't see the feedback loop. You just have to trust a slightly crazy person who says it's going to work. And it's hard to do that when a real like doctor is telling you that that's crazy and that you should go get this chemotherapy instead. And that's what everybody does. So yeah, I I think there's a lot to unpack there and the personalization, like we now have the infrastructure to handle personalization of all that data and to collect it relatively cheaply. And there's just the great value in that that hasn't yet been realized. And I'm doing a terrible job of giving you shorter answers on a per uh, <laughs> per, per topic basis. No, no, this one is real. This is like a really deep and interesting one too, because it's like I feel like on the personalized nutrition front and and health front, the data is out. Like there is data for all the stuff, provided you wear. Let's say you wear the tracker. You know, you go to the doc. Like there, you know, you can get your blood test. All this data exists. It's just very siloed everywhere, and it doesn't talk to each other. There's no sort of like recommendation engine or you know, I hate, I mean, again, this is another word I don't like, but like smart thing that's telling you, Hey, yeah, your whoop said this, your last blood test said this, this was in your Instacart. We think this is the better decision for you, for you. And you're right. There probably aren't that many crazy people who would do all of that right now. But I think the next question, I think this applies to web three also, uh, this is something that just I keep coming back to. It's, it's come up in all three episodes I've done, four episodes I've done so far. So I feel like it's becoming a theme. Is like the on ramps. 
So this is not even Web3 related. This is on the personalized health thing. The on-ramps for like a regular person to start using something, it just kind of has to be easy. And I think like Whoop and uh, Aura, like they've done a really good job with this health tracker being easy kind of thing compared to other things I've seen in the past. Even Apple Fitness, you know, would be plenty like Apple Fitness would know, hey, you like you walked a long time yesterday. Maybe you like, I don't know, went to the zoo or were in New York or whatever. Like you should dial up the carbs and the proteins relative to fats tomorrow in order to kind of maximize recovery. Like those are all really interesting things that could very easily, you know, you could feed macro requirements into your Uber Eats order or something like that. Like so much is getting automated on the delivery side and there's so much more structured data than there used to be in grocery and meal and calories that you can close that loop much easier than, you know, if if we can use big data to, (laughs) to drive like recommendations and stitch fix, um, we should be able to do it for our own personal physical health. It's a harder problem for sure, but it's, um, it is important and wide ranging and gives us the benefit of learning all of these things and seeing how different we all are and running a giant, you know, health laboratory sort of in real time all around the world. Okay. So we can, again, that could be a whole episode. We, <laughs> we may have to do that at some point, but uh, space is the next one, which I, so the way I'm understanding you guys talking about space is like, you got SpaceX, you got all these other uh, companies that are trying to make space more accessible. What's like, What's like the next layer that comes off of that, off of that basic capability? Am I understanding that correct? Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, if if space is a platform that's newly accessible, uh, there's a bunch of use cases um, that weren't possible before that that are now. And people smarter than me are going to figure out stuff to do with that. Like Planet Labs is is probably the first example of like, they're like, oh, we can get stuff up into space. Cool. Let's real time image the whole surface of the earth or take a photo of the whole earth every day, which gets close to some of these like sci-fi tropes like... um, you know, the Earth program in Snow Crash that was like real time Google Maps slash Google Earth, and it was like the Marauders map for the whole planet constantly, like which is crazy, but not that, but possible now, right? Like totally within the bounds of physics and current technological know how. Um, do we want that? Like maybe, maybe not, but it's possible to get closer to that now. And yeah, um, I mean, Varda is like doing, I don't know if they're actually doing it yet, but they're they are tackling space manufacturing. Like there's things that'll be easier to do or grow or build in, in zero gravity. And that's pretty rad. And there's probably, you know, 10 or 100 more things that I haven't even heard of yet because a smart entrepreneur has to teach it to me. But, you know, when there's a new platform, a new frontier that's newly economically accessible, like almost invariably a ton of new opportunities and use cases arise and... Um, also it's just fucking cool. Like space is awesome and badass. And I I am not above saying that I invest in things that I find to be cool. Like (laughs) that is definitely a part of the thesis. Yeah. Anyone who was a nerd growing up, it's like, that's the ultimate thing, right? Like there's nothing cooler than space. It's like to be able to have a space company in your portfolio would just be like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And to be honest, it's like a decent indicator of like what, uh, (laughs) of, of what, is going to work or what is going to be interesting yeah that's that's for sure true too um i feel like there are a lot more companies that i've seen lately which are like that next layer of what's possible if space is accessible i don't know if there's a lot but i just feel like i've been coming across more than i ever did before which was probably zero before yeah and and the other thing i would say on space is that there is also a whole huge um 
supply chain getting created on the back end. So it is not just like, what can you do with the new platform? It is how do we support a very quickly growing space industry that is going to need new software, new tooling, new manufacturing, different parts and different materials at a new pace, like all of that. I grew up in Detroit, so I am um, familiar with just how big a like supporting economy of a supply chain of an industry is. And if space becomes its own auto industry scale thing, there is just unbelievable depth and niche of opportunity. Like the economy is just so mind bogglingly big. And there are huge, huge, huge companies that do things that you would never even think of, you know, three and four niches down into a supply chain like that. Yes, that it's, it becomes this full industry, not just, you know, here's this one company. It's this whole industry that supports that has to support that and everything that goes into it. Yeah. And the same thing is going to happen in nuclear, right? Like the, the needs of a nuclear power plant are so, so different than yeah the needs of a, a coal power plant or an oil refinery. They, you know, they need new software, new tooling, new parts, new supply chain, new safety protocols, new PPE, new everything is different. And that whole supply chain can shift over. And that is a huge opportunity for an entirely new supply chain and supporting infrastructure industry um, to take over from some of the oil and gas and fossil fuel um, supply chain that exists today. So what makes you uh, this because this was the next one on my list too. uh, what makes you so bullish on nuclear? Like what's the the sort of base case bullish uh, scenario for nuclear? Um, I, I may be like a, a dreamy eyed optimist at the fact that like the superior technology will eventually win. I think over the long arc of history, that's true, though it can take a distressingly long time for it to, to be there. Uh, people have a very, um, the, the main bulk of the population, I think is, is wildly misinformed for historical reasons when it comes to nuclear, like nuclear is way safer, way cleaner, way cheaper and just like less dangerous to society than most people think. Like when you talk about the the Fukushima nuclear disaster, people are like, oh God, we can't have another Fukushima. It's like, well, what was Fukushima? And they're like, nuclear power plant blew up. It's like, sort of. Um, A tsunami and an earthquake hit Japan and many, many, many people died, like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And a nuclear power plant happened to also be hit and it did explode a little bit, but like a few dozen people were mildly injured and one died from radiation. So is that a reason to not pursue nuclear power that could be like orders of magnitude cheaper and less dangerous? And there's a political reasons why nuclear might come to the forefront. We have gotten, we found new materials like thorium to run nuclear on instead of uranium, which is way less likely to be it's, it's less volatile. Um, it's way more common. So it's not as difficult to get as uranium. It doesn't get weaponized. Uh, it doesn't have nearly as much nuclear waste byproduct. So a lot of the common or, or initial concerns about nuclear are moot now. Um, it's still very expensive, but that's mostly due to regulation. And the fact that we're redesigning each power plant from the ground up instead of just getting a blueprint and printing a shitload of them um, and creating them. So we're them. not getting any leverage there. Yeah, no no leverage. Yeah, so there's a lot of, um, but but there's also like a lot of people coming around to the fact that like maybe there's some negative byproducts to burning all the fossil fuels that we have. And 
there are some entrenched interests that are trying to convince us that that's a good idea, even though it's not. Uh, if you're concerned about climate change, the best thing to do is stop burning oil and coal and gas and start doing nuclear energy. In addition to renewables, that's great. But like nuclear is the only thing that's going to get us farther out in space than chemical fuels can possibly take us. A lot of new exciting things become possible there. Nuclear can get reinforced with, with nanotech and create these kind of like in the 50s and 60s, scientists were predicting or uh, sci-fi authors in particular, even technical well-informed ones were predicting that like by 2020, appliances wouldn't have cords and we wouldn't have to charge things anymore because we'd have a nuclear battery built into everything that needed energy that was just able to last tens or hundreds of years. And that's not even a possibility that most people consider. We've made close to zero progress on like that scale of things. People have forgotten that that's actually like should be the goal. So there's a lot to do on, on nuclear. Again, as you say, a few times that could be a whole episode and it has been like that's the podcast that i just did today was with the author of that book um that, that came out that is where i learned all of this stuff in like the last month i was a fucking idiot about nuclear i still am i mean i'm a i'm at the dangerous point of like i've been reading about it for three months and i sound like i know what i'm talking about but i really don't but i you know there's enough people who believe with with you know decades of education who believe that this should be the future that i tend to believe them and all the reasons that all of the cons are quickly eroding or weren't cons to begin with. They're just sort of activist uh, claptrap from people who think that we shouldn't have more energy, which is equivalent to just thinking that people should stay in poverty and live in this zero sum, highly contentious, dangerous scrabble for resources, which is uh, pretty fucked up in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, it's the um, Malthusiasts, basically Malthusian view. Uh, on humanity and it's like more energy doesn't mean more pollution necessarily like it doesn't mean more more like worse climate change or more co2 emissions like that's the current paradigm but doesn't mean we can't get beyond that one thing i wanted before we uh skip off from from nuclear one thing i did want to talk about was like it almost feels like from what you said that there's a marketing problem with it like when you say different types of energy right even like fossil fuels, right? You picture like a smokestack or something. I don't know. That's what I picture. Solar panels, right? I picture solar panels. Wind, I picture a windmill. Like hydroelectric, I picture like the Hoover Dam, right? And then you say the word nuclear and you picture like a mushroom cloud. And it's just like, I wonder if there's like, and you shouldn't, right? Because that's not true. I mean, it's not what a nuclear power plant does. Even if it did explode, I don't think it would be in like the shape of a mushroom cloud necessarily. It'd be more like a, a leak or something like that. But yeah, I don't know. Like it, it's like almost a marketing problem. It feels like, and that's to the average person. So there's almost like, as you said, in the I think a lot of the costs here are regulatory. On your site, you say non. What did you say exactly? You said lower than American regulatory overhead. Is there is there like a particular region you guys would be looking at more closely than like what places are doing this well? Is probably my real question. So there's going to be people with a better answer to this. I believe like. Germany and Eastern Europe are working on this quite intentionally. What's interesting and that I just learned is that like Bill Gates tried to do this and America was like, no, uh, like try to fund a lot of nuclear energy research and America wouldn't let him. And so he went to China and was like, hey, I'd like to do this and America won't let me. Can I do it here? And they were like, sure. And America was like, how about no, you can't do that either. And so what I realize is, is that like 
America projects their own what they think should happen. It's like because because like nuclear energy is equated with nuclear weapons, um, and there's some overlap, but not in technology. But it's not like if you have a nuclear power plant, you can create an atomic bomb. Like those are not equivalent things. But America still kind of like polices and regulates territory, the technology development in territories that aren't theirs through other means, which is not great because the whole history of technology is sort of like when a thousand flowers bloom and a bunch of different experiments are run in this sort of decentralized way where everybody's kind of trying different things and tinkering in their garage, new ideas are tried and the right idea comes forth in this sort of like meritocracy of of technology and distribution takes over but when something is as expensive and you know high overhead and and dangerous as nuclear you don't have that dynamic nearly as much and if you don't have centralized uh, even a bunch of different centralized actors it'd be one thing if 20 different countries were even trying to run their own programs but with high intent and big funding but even that's not really happening so i, I think there's like a dangerous thing happening where there's like central control by an entity that doesn't re that isn't as aggressively pursuing it as they could you know the atomic bomb happened there was basically three countries all trying to build atomic bombs as quickly as they could to win a world war ii and america happened to do it first there was no guarantee that that was going to work and that we were going to be first but there was massive massive interest because you didn't want to die or lose the war in being the first to do that. And there's just nowhere near the urgency to accelerate the development of, you know, nuclear power or nanotech or any, any of these things that there was around, around that though. There's no like Manhattan project. Yeah. There is no Manhattan yeah. project for nuclear energy though. There should be, and we should all want that because it, it would be such an enormous source of abundance for, for us and lifting people out of poverty and enabling all these new technologies there's so many innovations that are constrained by the lack of cheap energy that we just don't think about. I just spent like a, a uh, like a little over a week in Arizona and like that part of the world, lack of water is such a big thing. The water is everywhere, but if you had a, if you had cheap energy, you you could use desalination, right? Like that's an energy dependent thing and we don't do it as much as we would because it costs a ton of energy to do that. And it's just not economical. There's no water shortage in the world. I mean, most of the world is water. We just don't have the ability from an energy perspective to turn that into usable water. Yeah, that's that's economics, not technology. And cheaper energy means abundant water. And if you know, scarce fresh water is the main thing that we are worried about in the coming hundred years. If you listen to, you know, Michael Burry or anybody in California. You know that, and that trickles down to agriculture and how expensive our food is going to be. And like, there is just so much downstream of cheap energy that I have very little uh, patience or understanding for anybody who is implicitly or explicitly anti-energy uh, innovation and cheaper energy and more energy. That that is not a view I, I can find much sympathy with, um, though it is quite common. So yeah, I don't know. I, I struggle with that a little bit, but yeah. It's, that's, I'm here to hold the flag and like, let's, let's join the charge. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the energy innovation thing is just like, it's definitely a marketing problem uh, in more ways than one. That's just like you, it almost feels like to be a pro environmentalist, you have to be anti-energy in many ways, unless it's renewable energy. 
but yeah, it's like, it's hard to find two. I mean, not saying there aren't people. There's a lot of people who probably also know that more energy equals cheaper food, cheaper, everything and less poverty. I'm not saying that's like an uncommon viewpoint either, but it is very, it's kind of scarily common to believe that energy is bad. Like more energy is, is a bad thing. Yeah. That, that it's more, I think more people are concerned about climate change and uh, efficient use of existing energy than they are about improving the abundance and cost and economics of energy. It, my joke is always like, if our parents spent as much time yelling at us to turn off the lights as they did working on actually building and funding nuclear power, like we wouldn't have to worry about turning on the lights. We leave all the lights on forever because it'd be basically free. But yeah, I think that's, that's totally right. Like marketing problem, desire problem, um, lack of understanding how, how all the dominoes fit together is important. The good news is it does seem like people are talking about this finally, and it's becoming a little bit more mainstream. And then I think the other thing is the problem is becoming more and more acute where it's just needed. So hopefully that drives something too. So next two, I know relatively little about, so I'll probably spend most of the time being quiet for once. Nanotechnology and quantum computing. I know almost nothing about either one, but they both sound super cool. Yeah, nanotech I'm I'm especially fired up about right now because I just finished this book where's my flying car. The, the, this is also where I learned all the nuclear stuff. So Josh Stores Hall is this like he spent his career in AI and nanotech and um wrote this book that's basically like a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about in basically forecasting and hoping and dreaming of the next industrial revolution. Um, which is this combination of nuclear energy and nanotechnology and AI. So if these three technologies sort of move apace, they are each mutually reinforcing and have the potential to really to, to move like human comfort and productivity and accomplishments a whole nother order of magnitude or maybe two. And in our lifetimes, we can see things that are just gobsmackingly impossible to consider happening today. In the same way that prior to the previous industrial revolution, our life expectancy was less than half. We had no steel, no internal combustion engines. We were making no use of oil or gas. We had certainly no flight, uh, no railroads. Like it is very difficult for us to appreciate just how like short and scary and dangerous lives were before the industrial revolution and uncomfortable, no electricity, no uh, plumbing at scale, no, uh, I don't know, the list goes on. So this next version of industrial revolution could really enable like basically entire flying cities. It could enable something like travel over the speed of sound, something approaching much cheaper or trivially expensive like interplanetary travel, energy too cheap to meter, nanotech that meant that we could build towers out of diamond and launch things into space at like negligible cost. So nanotechnology is basically the, the simplest version. It's the ability to treat individual atoms like building blocks. So Lego atoms are our Legos and we can build any material that we want. So a creating a tower out of diamond is no more difficult than creating a bowl of fruit out of, the raw materials that you have, which a lot of which we can get from either the ground or the air, it's functionally the end of scarcity in the physical world. 
and nuclear is the only energy source cheap enough to power that. And nanotech helps us do nuclear at a much uh, cheaper and faster way and at a smaller scale so that we can have these like little nuclear batteries and smaller nuclear power plants. And like basically Iron Man, let's, let's just say like Iron Man becomes real with both nuclear and nanotech. And we need AI to help us like develop both of those technologies is like how that next thing can unfold. But all of the other stuff that comes with that become really cool. Don't take my word for this. Like, p- please go read the book written by the actual expert and get all of the appropriate like parameters and constraints and caveats. Because like I said, I'm, I'm like a dangerous level of n- new to this and no deep technical education. I was surprised to learn from Josh that there's more progress in nanotech than there is progress in nuclear that like the path to that is actually a little more clear. Yeah. Even though I think it's farther from like the common, it's farther from my mind and probably like talked about less often. Nanotech, really, really exciting and interesting, especially in sort of the end case where we can just build whatever we want basically instantly. Yeah. That's, I mean, going back to like enabling technologies, I mean, that's another, that's another one where like, if that is possible on a real world scale, I mean, the kinds of things that that could enable, it's just like, it. I don't think you can grasp, or at least I can't grasp right now, all the possibilities that that would actually create. It's like, in our mind, right? It's like, oh, building that, it costs something. So it's like, the mental math you do is like, is that worth it? But if it doesn't really cost anything, that completely changes. It's almost like an irrational number or something. Like, it doesn't make sense initially. We have stuff we treat like this now, right? Like, bandwidth is basically too cheap to meter. We're not thinking about the fact that, you know, we're both on live video and recording. You know, we pay a flat rate, you know, whatever, 50, 70 bucks a month for internet. And then we just consume all we want with no thought for the marginal cost. That is basically what energy could be like with appropriately built nuclear. It is also what physical things could be like with nanotech. And that is a way bigger leap to make. It is something that when you wrap your head around is like, what could possibly be more important than making that happen sooner, right? Like that would help people live longer. That would help them stay healthy. That would be the end of starvation in the same way that, as you mentioned, like abundant energy is the end of, you know, any constraint around fresh water. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if energy is cheap, then transportation is cheap. Then the logistics problem around distributing food and medical resources, uh, you know, become trivial. It, one of the examples in the book for, for nanotech is that, you know, you might have a device that is like the size of your phone with a vitamin pill in it or something that is like a bunch of rare atoms that you couldn't synthesize from the air that might become necessary. And when the formulation for hypothetically a vaccine for just hypothetically a pandemic is complete, that formula can get updated to everyone's like little printy iPhone and it can synthesize the dose of the vaccine and you could administer it at home at scale instantly and, and physical things could get distributed that in that way that like, even if you thought about 3d printing a lot, you still kind of think like, Oh, I'll have to have a 3d printer. You don't think like, Oh, something the size of my phone could synthesize a physical, a, a pill from the air from, and, and like molecules within it would have an effect on whether, you know, I live. And this is back to personalized nutrition. Like you could do the same thing every day to augment your vitamin intake based on, you know, what you happened to eat the day before or what you happened to do the day before. So all, all of these things kind of, you know, th- there's not a lot of new problems, but the appearance of new technologies constantly sort of 
keeps us on our toes for what new, what existing problems we can solve in new and more permanent uh, or more precise ways. Yeah, these are all these different areas. I need to read this book, by the way, that you keep mentioning. It's Where's My Flying yeah. Car? Yep. Where's That's My Flying Car? I, I need to listen to the episode too. I think that came out today, right? Yeah, the, the interview with the author came out today. I did a solo cast of a little bit uh, episode or two ago with just some of my favorite highlights and concepts from the book. So like the book is not, it's not super technical, but it is like written by a scientist. So it's not, it's not a beach read in a weekend, but it is really fun and impactful and really like gets your mind going. But yeah, if you want a gateway drug, like those, <laughs> those two episodes are designed to like inspire, educate a little bit, but mostly inspire you to like commit to and go all the way through the book. And it truly, when I closed that book, I was like, this is going to change how I allocate my effort and prioritize how I invest and change how I think about, you know, what, what is important in terms of technology. Most of our careers, we've been just in this digital revolution and software and computers are basically the only things that have gotten better in our lifetimes or, or the primary source of innovation. Energy has gotten, has basically flatlined. Like, which means it's gotten no cheaper per capita. We haven't gotten more energy per capita. And that's why when you see these, like you see some of these like sci-fi shows or um, episodes where like basically nothing changes except the quality of the phone. I think like Parks and Rec did an episode that was like in 10 years in the future. And everything was exactly the same about the entire set, except everybody had these like fancy holograph phones. And I was like, oh shit like that is exactly what's happening moore's law is the only thing that is like still progressing and our software is getting better but imagine if you had the exact same iphone for the next 50 years like how disappointing would that be and terrible especially after seeing the progress that we have made so far every fucking year tim cook gets on stage and he's like guess what it's faster and thinner and more cameras and the software is better and we made everything in your life better you're welcome and nowhere else is that happening. Like we don't see somebody doing that in nuclear. Elon Musk is now doing that with cars, thank God. But like, or in in space. But not, that's not going to affect most of us on a daily basis yet. But progress in all of these other areas is possible if we want it and we push it and we prioritize it. And for hundreds of years, the energy use per capita and energy cost per capita was going down. Three hundred years, and then in the seventies, it just stopped. And we, we have to, if we want like safety and abundance and even like positive relations with our neighbors and other countries, like we have to get energy in particular, but other physical innovations like back on pace. Yeah. Energy is kind of like the foundational one, right? Cause I feel like it would affect food. It would affect, I mean, we talked about water already, but it affects so much that scarcity of energy would be probably it would probably not probably it already does lead to wars it leads to poverty for sure because we all use it right so if the price of that is high it's going to eat into everybody's budget it's one of like the the worst things to have a scarcity of i mean it's like energy food water and shelter are probably you know like the four things that you just need like they're just baseline yeah and if you think about I mean, uh, this is not a well-considered opinion and it's well outside my circle of competence, but if you think about the main conflicts and disasters of the last, I don't know, 30 years, it's kind of like, well, Russia's invading Ukraine. Why? Like, because uh, they have a shitload of oil. Russia invaded, or uh, America invaded Iraq, ostensibly for reasons other than oil, but 
maybe because they had a lot of oil. It, we're enabling like some atrocities in Saudi Arabia because of the oil that they have there. Like there is a, a lot of that. I mean, the oil spills in the Gulfs and tankers like that happens. Like there's so much that happens because of energy and we are not even getting anything great out of it. It's just trying to keep our heads above water and, and not move backwards. So that, that's why I think like renewables are great, but like it is very difficult to get ahead of this without without nuclear. And that does become just very, very important. Okay, so there's a few more, but in the interest of time, if you're listening to this and you want to go and read the rest of the ones, I'm going to have the link in the show notes. I think everybody actually should go to their website, the rolling.fun website, and just read it because it's a fun read. But I did want to spend a couple minutes on Balmanac. So I didn't, actually didn't know until I was researching for this episode, like doing a little, I was like, oh, I know Eric. So I'll, like research will be quick. And then I started diving in and I was like, what the hell is Balmanac? So I hadn't even seen any, I don't know if you've tweeted about it, but I didn't even know you were working on this. Oh yeah. I, I, very, I've been like, I don't know, kind of quiet about it, but it's, it's very, uh, it is in the exact same spirit of the Navalmanac. And actually like, after the Navalmanac came out, biology reached out and was like, Hey, uh, if you're interested in doing this, you know, I've collected a bunch of materials. I feel like I could potentially benefit from some organization and synthesis. Uh, and I was like, yep, yeah, probably. Um, you have a lot of really, really fascinating ideas that are difficult to access and sort of tangled up in contemporary events and so yeah I'm, I'm i have been working now for almost two years on sort of synthesizing and curating and organizing like the evergreen wisdom from uh biology and biology srinivasan is a i don't know also futurist investor founder phd i think in clinical genomics something i think i have that wrong he's a phd in something very smart and has like Founded a few companies. One was a clinical genomics company which sold for almost $400 million. He started Earn.com, which got bought by Coinbase. And then he was the CTO of Coinbase for a while. He just wrote a book called The Network State. He was early to call sort of COVID. And he's been in crypto for a very long time. He's just a fascinating guy with a very unique sort of perspective on the world and the future and a successful track record as a founder and an investor. And I think he's just got really, really interesting ideas um, that a lot of people could benefit from absorbing in the same way that Naval did. So, and people seem to really love the format for the Navalmanac. And I've been amazed with the, sort of the impact that that's had. And given the opportunity, I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it again. So I want to say I'm coming down the home stretch on the manuscript, but I can never be quite sure. And so I'm working on it and learning a ton doing it. And it's, it's actually been a really beautiful sort of synthesis with starting this fund and investing because I literally see, I, I spend, you know, the morning studying biology and trying to put some of these ideas in order and swimming around in his thoughts. And then I look at some companies in the afternoon and I'm like, oh, this pattern matches exactly the sort of very well articulated vision of the future that biology dropped and the historical sort of technologies that he talked about developing and the pace of really high in that. And like, this comes together wonderfully. Um, so yeah, let's make this investment. And actually, I think in part because of that, and our shared vision for the future, Bology is an investor in the fund, uh, which is about the highest compliment I could ask for, which is super cool. So yeah, I'm proud to be allocating a small amount of his capital and getting into some of these companies that are going to, I think, meaningfully move us towards this future that, uh, you know, this brighter future and solve a lot of these problems that we've been talking about. I'm definitely going to look forward to that one. Maybe we'll do another Made You Think with Balmanac. Is there any kind of release date yet or are you not too, it's too early? This too, that'd be dangerous. I, I have one that I want, but I, 
and this is this is a battle that I have of like I want to get it out and in people's hands eagerly, but I also know like maybe the most important lesson I learned from the Navalmanac is like craftsmanship requires an infinite timeline, and if you want something really, really, really high quality, you you cannot rush and you cannot compromise in the face of a deadline. You just have to give it the time and attention that it deserves. And that moving the goalposts on yourself is almost a necessary component to like getting something that is truly great and evergreen and an incredible reader experience and super valuable. And that frankly, the returns on that are like really important. Like you want something that is so good that people read it and love it and wish it was longer and recommend it to their friends. And that is so critical. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to respectfully withhold a timeline and just tell myself to put a little extra turn in it um, and make sure that it's great by the time it's out and uh, keep working on it. I, I spent all morning working on it. It's, it is getting attention and care and love and it's moving, but I, I want to make sure it's great. I mean, Balaji is actually one of the best follow-up people, I think, to do from going from Navalmanac because it's like he's very similar in that his ideas are, he's actually more technical, I would say, than Naval, at least in my own opinion I, I don't know if that's true but just from his tweets he seems more technical so I, I wonder if like the material that you're working with is harder to sift through it's more technical yeah he's he's a little less pithy than Naval is and he's he spends a lot more time actually talking about sort of contemporary events so there's a lot more to sift through in that sense of of like what are the really evergreen ideas here that are going to serve truly anybody who picks up this book you know be be useful to them all right. This episode has been awesome, Eric. Where can people find you? What should they go look at? Obviously, you have a podcast. And then obviously, go buy Navalmanac. That's out. I've read it. It's awesome. Did a two podcast episodes on it, not just one. Did two full episodes on Navalmanac. So make sure you go buy that. But Eric, where can people find you online? Everything that I do, you can find from ejorgensen.com. I spent a lot of time on my on Twitter as well. So that's probably the easiest place to get a hold of me. But all, all the podcasts, the blog posts, the book, the fund are all linked from from ejorgensen.com. Yeah, it's a, it's a wide range of projects, but you know, you'll find something something interesting or useful there, I hope, uh, for everybody. Yes, yeah, so there's the course, there's the podcast, there's the book, there's the fund, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's been awesome to, to be here. And this is a very fun conversation. And it's good to dig into some of these things that, uh, you know, just fun projections on the world. I appreciate you having me. This is awesome. Hopefully we'll eat a sandwich together soon. For anybody who doesn't know, Eric has this epic thread going on Twitter of just his sandwiches that he eats. I don't even know how many are on there now, but they're it's long. That's a it's, long it's thread. Dozens. I've been at this for, for years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like either stupid commentary or none at all. I'm glad you contextualize that because I think it's like the third sandwich drop inside joke we've had. But um, I need to throw something in the intro for that. Is that some people? <laughs> Otherwise, no one's going to get it. They'll figure it out. <laughs> Welcome, welcome to the inside joke. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Eric, this was awesome. I uh, would love to have you back on at some point. But uh, yeah, go follow Eric. Go read his book and uh, invest in his fund if you want.